You are listening to the Left Right Forward Show with Ambassador Delano Lewis. Enjoy the show. Welcome. You're listening to Left Right Forward Business and Political Solutions, and I'm your host, Ambassador Delano Lewis. We're beginning a series on the constitutional crisis facing our nation, and I'm pleased to have today a constitutional law professor from my alma mater, Washburn School of Law in Topeka, Kansas. He is Bill Rich. Welcome to the show, Bill. Thank you, Dell. Uh, we're going to start uh, just giving a little background to our listeners about you. Uh, tell us a little bit about your background and how you got into the law and uh, what you're doing in terms of the subjects you're teaching and your likes and dislikes on that score. But give us a sense of, uh, of uh, your background. Sure. Uh, I got into the law in large part because it opened the door to do so many different things. And I have to confess, I didn't know what direction I was going to be going at that time. I went to law school at Bolt Hall, University of California in Berkeley. Uh, after I finished law school, I returned to Kansas, which is my home state. Right. Oh, good. And practiced law here for a couple of years, but that was 43 years ago. <laughs> and yeah. I've been teaching at Washburn Law School now for those 43 years. <clears throat> That's fantastic. 43 years. Incredible. And you've been in the constitutional law field the whole time? I've been spending most of my time teaching constitutional law, teach jurisprudence. I've taught lots of other courses along the way, but this has always been my passion. That's fantastic. I know we have met along the way. I graduated from Washburn and when you say 43, uh, 1963, I graduated from Washburn Law and uh, still have been strongly supportive of my alma mater. You trained... And we have appreciated all of that, I can assure you. Well, thank you. You trained uh, good lawyers, for sure. And I uh, was just talking recently with uh, uh, Washburn, and I think an article was in one of the uh, newsletters uh, from Washburn about Brown v. Board of Education, which yes. was a Topeka, Kansas case uh, on the desegregation of schools. And and the lawyers that worked with Thurgood Marshall, the uh, lawyers were from the uh, Elijah Scott Law Firm, and it was Elijah Scott and his sons, all graduates of Washburn. So, yeah, not only did they all graduate from Washburn, but uh, the, the lawyers at that stage, but when the case was reopened several years later, wow. we once again had some Washburn Law graduates involved in the case, and I, I had the privilege of working with them some. Oh, that's fantastic. And the reopening of the case. Oh, that's nice. And what was the reopening? Uh, the reopening occurred uh, in the late 1970s, early 80s, when there was a feeling that not enough had been done to mm -hmm. fully desegregate the schools in Topeka. And while the school board had uh, prevented any kind of direct claims that something needed to be done because they said the case was still under the uh, control of the judicial branch. Right. The result was that the lawyers involved decided to go straight back to court <laughs> and, uh, once again, received significant relief from the courts. Incredible. Uh, yep. and, and were successful in uh, further desegregating in Topeka? They were successful. Mm -hmm. The case had to go all the way back up. The U.S. Supreme Court denied cert, but the Tenth Circuit uh, ruled in favor of the intervening plaintiffs at that stage, including Linda Brown, whose child was in the Topeka Public Schools at that time. And the result was the uh, creation of some magnet schools and some good further desegregation in this community. 
And that's a very favorable outcome. And you said there were Washburn grads involved at that stage? Yes, there were. That's incredible. Uh, we're going to be talking about um, the standoff between the executive and the legislative. And I've been concerned about this. Um, maybe we can start with maybe not a constitutional question, but the, the co-equal branches of government. And give us a sense of uh, just generally if you're feeling about this, uh, the judiciary, the executive, and the legislative. And it, it was in our founding fathers in the Constitution set up these co-equal branches of government. Could you help start us from, from that position? Uh, sure. The, what is remarkable about what's happening now is uh, the various ways in which people who set up our government more than 200 years ago really thought about all of these issues at a basic level, and as a result created a kind of constitutional structure in which no single entity could exercise too much power. Right. But they were all subject to checks and balances from the other branches of government. Uh, that's a structure that has worked very well, but it's still not perfect. Mm -hmm. uh, there are still problems when one part of that, uh, one branch of that government uh, obtains and then attempts to use too much of its power. What we have particularly seen is that although the legislative branch may have been seen as the most powerful of the three at the time when the government was initially created, the executive branch has gained more and more power over time. Mm -hmm. And that has happened in a variety of ways. It's happened both because of ways in which Congress has delegated authority to the executive branch, and also ways in which the government has simply grown so that mm -hmm. we have a bureaucracy now, which is way beyond anything that could have been contemplated back in 1787. Right. Uh, that is incredible. And you, when you say delegated, um, um, any specific examples come to mind? And delegating there some of are authority? lots of examples. Mm -hmm. uh, Congress has, in a variety of ways, enacted laws, and in doing so, given discretion to the executive branch. So that frequently what's happened is members of Congress can't exactly agree on what the law should be or can't simply anticipate all the events that might happen in the future. And as a result, they have given to the executive branch the authority to make decisions, to exercise discretion mm -hmm. in ways that were not necessarily contemplated at the time when a particular law had been enacted. Mm-hmm. You know, one thing that comes to mind, I was trying to prepare for this program uh, to get a sense of the, all the issues in the, under the Constitution. War powers, for example, just jumped out at me. Um, yes. And I think that's a clear example that is, when you read the Constitution, it's pretty clear that uh, uh, Congress um, can declare war. Absolutely. But what is, what's happened over the years is the, the, the executive has taken us into war. That's right. Now, that the, the words on the paper with respect to congressional authority over war have been overtaken by events. Mm -hmm. And there's been an implicit kind of acknowledgement that Congress expects presidents to be able to act in response to an emergency of any sort. Right. And presidents have taken advantage of that authority. <laughs> right. Uh, which leads me to uh, some explanation of 
executive orders. Um, that's not in the Constitution yes. anywhere, is it? <laughs> but it's not. But presidents uh, have been acting through executive orders. What is it? How does that work? What's happening there? Executive orders again, are an example of things that, for a lot of practical reasons, we expect president to be able to carry out. Mm -hmm. The executive orders extend all the way back, for example, to the declaration that there should be a federal holiday for Thanksgiving. That Mm -hmm. was an executive order. Um, Everybody thought it was a good idea and went along with it. And subsequently, we have a Thanksgiving holiday, and we should all be thankful at some level. Right. Obviously, executive orders extend in a lot of other directions as well. Mm-hmm. And there are remaining questions as to just how far a president can go. And are, are there time limits to it? Uh, I guess each executive order would differ, but do, they, right. set, do they set time limits? Does it, does it expire? Uh, some of them do. Mm-hmm. I would say most of them don't. Yeah. Uh, they're subject to the person who happens to be in the Oval Office at the time. Mm-hmm. So an executive order from one president can be overridden, generally, mm-hmm. by the next president, and that becomes the primary limitation. There are also limitations that can be set by Congress, but Congress has to be uh, working effectively right. in right. order for that to happen. And if they don't set those limitations, it just continues, and that president has That's gained some authority. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the Supreme Court set out a framework for determining what was permissible and what wasn't with respect to executive orders. But their framework, the framework itself is extraordinarily vague. Right. It does say that in many cases, if there is either implicit or explicit congressional support, then the executive order is likely to be upheld. Right, right, right. That's fascinating. Um, I'd like to move on to um, another one that uh, that certainly I wanted to get your opinion on, and that's the appropriations clause. Uh, Uh, That's come up quite a bit recently. Uh, Give us a sense of the background on the appropriations. The appropriations clause is what basically gives fundamental authority to Congress. Mm -hmm. It's Congress that decides uh, how money should be appropriated, how money should be spent. And one would think at a basic level that that it is both what gives Congress all of its power and what limits what the president can and cannot do. Mm-hmm. The uh, problems with the appropriations clause, however, occur for the very reason that we were talking about just a minute ago. And that's the fact that when Congress exercises its appropriations authority, it also has at times uh, allowed for president's to make changes, mm-hmm. uh, presidents to exercise discretion in whether or not to actually spend money in a particular case, or even whether to use money to address an emergency that might not have been contemplated. Right. And so if Congress has given the president the authority to make changes, then it's within the scope of the executive authority to decide exactly how that money is going to be spent. And what, give me your sense of this real issue that's before us today in terms of the President Trump declaring a national emergency on our southern border. And uh, uh, Congress has said, we're only going to give so much money for this wall. And he's saying, I need more money. And I'm going to take some money that's been appropriated for military functions. 
I'm going to take some of that money and use it to the wall because this is an emergency and I have this power. I have real difficulty with that one. Uh, <laughs> that is, I find that to be what should an example of what should fall within the boundaries of a case where Congress has very explicitly said uh, in rejecting money for the wall through the negotiations and so forth, right. including a shutdown of our government that took place back in January, mm-hmm. um, that seems to be an indication that Congress objects to the use of the money in that way. But uh, it wasn't explicit in the same manner that courts might look to, and courts have real difficulty substituting their judgment for that of the president, deciding what is and is not an emergency. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's not at all clear where those boundaries are. What's happening is that the executive branch is taking advantage of the lack of clarity in the boundaries that exist. And while that, in turn, ends up being challenged in the courts, courts are awfully slow to make decisions and haven't provided us with a very clear indication as to how or where they're going to draw those lines. Interesting, interesting. And I've had um, interviewed uh, former secretary under Obama for Homeland Security, Jay Johnson, and he had mentioned that, yes, um, if I'm going to try to use money that had been appropriated for one function uh, to use it for another, I would go back to Congress and ask for the permission to do so. Uh, That really is the normal expectation. And I think that's absolutely the way this should work. Uh, The current administration obviously attempted to do that uh, just at the beginning of the year. And Congress turned them down. Right. And to me, that should be the, uh, the, the guide to whether or not the president should be allowed to do it, just because he has now declared that there is an emergency. Whether courts will go that direction, uh, what conclusion they will reach, it is, uh, as a result, something that is likely to be held up in the courts for a period of time. Mm-hmm. And it may very well be that in the long term, courts will end up concluding that the president really didn't have the authority in this instance to take such actions. But I'm not at all sure of that, right. uh, again, because of the vagueness of the language that's there and the test that will use by, be, be used by the courts in supervising decisions like that. And you made another point about the courts are slow to move. And let's talk a little bit about that third branch of government, uh, the judiciary. Um, And if they're slow to move, I mean, cases are being brought now, for example, on the emoluments clause and uh, taking of something of value from a foreign government um, on the part of uh, civil officials. Uh, including the president, um, would be a violation of a monuments clause. And that's all set out in the Constitution. And um, what are the, you know, is this going to go through the courts? There are some lawsuits out there on this issue that's going to take time. Where do you think this is going to go? I wish I knew. (laughs) Um, Part of the problem with the emoluments clause is that it has never previously been tested. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, I I write a treatise on constitutional law, but if you look in my treatise, you'll find nothing on the emoluments clause because there's no Supreme Court precedent telling us what it means or providing additional information about what is and is not an emolument Mm -hmm. or or whether or not it has been violated in a particular case. Uh, And that's part of the problem of the situation that we're in right now. 
there is so little precedent because the things that are happening go so far beyond what we have previously experienced. Mm -hmm. This is um, Left, Right, Forward, and we're talking to uh, constitutional law professor Bill Rich from the Washburn School of Law in Topeka. And we're covering some of the issues in the, that have surfaced uh, with this administration uh, and the legislative and the judiciary. And we've covered the Appropriations Clause, Emoluments Clause, um, and the fact that uh, some of this is not very clear. Uh, but what I'm amazed is that many of these things have been laid out in the Constitution uh, 200 years ago, uh, and some of them fairly clearly. Um, although up to some interpretation, and that's where the judiciary comes in. Yes. And that leads to another point. Uh, as I was doing research, I looked over uh, what, what the founding father said about impeachment. And pretty clear uh, that uh, they, they have set out impeachment for civil officers, in other words, government officers, um, that, uh, and that Article I think it's um, very clearly in Article 2, Section 4, uh, which saying that um, uh, that you could be impeached uh, and removed from office uh, uh, for bribery, treason, uh, high crimes, and misdemeanors. Uh, set that out pretty clearly. And they also set out the procedure for, um, for the president uh, to be impeached uh, with... Uh, the House bringing the articles of impeachment, and the Senate would stand as a body uh, for the trial. So it's amazing that they had for there was a there was a vision that these things could happen, and they set them out fairly clearly. So where do you think we are today as this is coming down the pike uh, on the impeachment inquiry, and where where things might end up? I certainly agree that the people who drafted the Constitution did a remarkable job at anticipating various <laughs> issues or problems, and impeachment is a particularly good example of that. Mm -hmm. Part of what's interesting to me is that if you look back at the various uses of the impeachment clause, and it has been used only a couple of times in the context of impeachment of a president, but has also been used in the impeachment of other officers, uh, especially judges. The primary uh, point at which impeachment becomes the appropriate uh, procedure for mm. Congress to uh, address is whether there has been an abuse of power. Right. Uh, terms like high crimes and misdemeanors are not themselves particularly clear. Mm -hmm. What was clear from the very beginning is that impeachment is really a political process. Right. It's the responsibility of the House of Representatives and then the United States Senate, first to decide whether there should be an impeachment and then to decide whether a person should be removed from office. And it is the abuse of power that is and has been historically uh, the primary reason why impeachment it may be appropriate. Uh, which, which the the fact, Go ahead. for example, that a, a, a president might run a red light or commit a traffic offense, um, that, that might be a misdemeanor, but it wouldn't be appropriate for impeachment. Mm -hmm. Impeachment is what is appropriate if there's a determination that a president has abused the power and the authority that's been given 
uh, under the terms of the Constitution, and it is the fundamental check that Congress still has. Mm -hmm. Which brings up, and I've been reading some literature on this, um, there does not have to be a crime, um, but, a def but a showing, as you just mentioned, um, some abuse of the power of the office, not acting consistent with the oath of office. I think that's absolutely right. Mm -hmm. Where some people may think, uh, I had an interview with Don Graham, a former publisher of the Washington Post, and uh, that interview was talking about Watergate. And he was saying that there was a crime involved uh, underneath the beginnings of impeachment against Nixon. And he was sort of positing the case, and I hadn't done my research then, that there's no crime here with President Trump. And I don't think uh, the Congress has to move or not move based on whether a crime is committed. I think you hit on it with the abuse of power. I agree. Yeah. So I, it's, it's fascinating about where this is going to end up. Um, just one other comment on this. Um, uh, I think the Mueller report um, was a fascinating uh, part of this drama. Um, and I don't know if you have any comments on it um, that – the legal counsel opinion um, at the Department of Justice said a sitting president could not be indicted. And it was pretty clear that Robert Mueller, being a career um, lawyer from the Justice Department, took that memo very seriously and felt that that limited him. This is my assessment. Limited him, and he may have said this um, on direct questions, that limited his ability to uh, move forward if he had such evidence, move forward to indict the president. Mm -hmm. So he chose not to. Um, and then, but he did lay out some allegations of uh, possible uh, obstruction of justice uh, issues, uh, but which he did not feel uh, that his purview was to answer that. Did I, did I kind of sum that up accurately from your I, point of view? You did. Mm -hmm. And, the disappointment to me is that so much attention was placed on the question of indictment. That's right. Uh, it's an example of mm -hmm. the focus going to whether or not a crime was committed, mm -hmm. when what we're dealing with in a context of uh, an investigation of the president really is not one of just criminal responsibility. Right but rather a question of how power has been exercised and whether it's been exercised in a lawful manner or an appropriate manner, uh, given the political judgments that have to be made. Mm -hmm. At one level, what the Mueller report told us was that if it's the president who has done something wrong and is the subject matter of the investigation, then it really is the responsibility of Congress right. to investigate that issue, to do so in depth and within the context of an impeachment inquiry. Mm -hmm. uh, clearly, issues involving obstruction of justice are also examples of issues that might be appropriately addressed through impeachment. Uh, I basically agree with the conclusion that uh, indictment of a president it is not the appropriate way to proceed. It, it's not appropriate for the administration itself mm -hmm. to initiate that kind of an indictment. And uh, a criminal responsibility 
while it could occur after the president has served a particular term, that's not something that uh, we should expect to be taking place during the term of office. Let me see uh, if I person. let me see if I understand what you're saying. Um, you may not have said this directly, but I'm going to ask the question directly. Um, would you agree with the legal counsel opinion of Justice Department that a sitting president should could not be or should not be indicted? Uh, I, I generally would agree with that. Okay. That is uh, that an indictment and criminal prosecution of a sitting president is something that hasn't happened historically and would probably not be appropriate. That is, the appropriate first step should be impeachment rather than criminal prosecution. That doesn't mean that indictment can't follow. It certainly can. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, But the office of the president is a unique office in this respect. Mm -hmm. And saying that criminal prosecution should wait until after the person has finished serving in the office is appropriate in the sense that it's Congress, not the attorney general, not the U.S. attorney, and not a state attorney general who should have that responsibility of uh, pursuing a president for criminal activity. That's interesting. During the term of office. That's fascinating. I, I must say that I, le- I I was leaning the other way, but your argument sounds persuasive. You're saying that that probably shouldn't be the role of the government, not the role of the attorney general uh, as a prosecutor of a sitting president. The appro- more appropriate approach from your point of view would be the impeachment process. And that's where I end up coming down. But it, it's a tough issue. It is. It's certainly not one where we have much precedent to guide us, <laughs> and I'm right. thankful for that. That's right. But another question uh, before I let you go, um, and that is you mentioned states. Uh, give me a sense from the legal point of view about state lawsuits uh, uh, and the, maybe the state lawsuits as it relates to federal government or federal officials. Um, That's another important one to understand mm-hmm. in terms of the structure of our government. Right. In fact, uh, not only do we have separation of powers and checks and balances within the federal government, but we also have independent political bodies in each of the states, and they have a significant role uh, in making their own independent decisions mm-hmm. about how particular laws should be enforced, or and they have independent authority to, in various ways, challenge what the federal government is doing. So that when it appears that a president, for example, is not carrying out the federal law in a way in which a state thinks it should be carried out, mm-hmm. you might end up with states themselves filing lawsuits against the executive and then determinations being made by the courts as to who's right, right. in that respect. And I think a number of states have been uh, pursuing those issues uh, aggressively and effectively in order to assure that the laws enacted by Congress are faithfully carried out by the current administration. That's fascinating. And from your point of view as as a constitutional law professor, you don't see any legal questions about states being able to do that. Oh, I think there are lots of legal questions that limit the extent to which states can do that. Okay. Um, And and creating those limitations are primarily the responsibility of Congress. Mm. That is, 
Congress can lay out uh, what the law is and who has authority to challenge in some specific uh, context. And where Congress has laid out what the law is, it then might be the states that end up responsible for being sure that the executive branch actually carries things out the way in which they ought to. Because the, uh, the the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Southern District of New York seems to be very active uh, vis-a-vis the Trump administration um, and carrying some things out. Well, and the, uh, the, when you're talking about the U.S. Attorney's Office from the Southern District of New York, that's the federal government itself. That's true. Mm-hmm. Yes. And uh, I, I was thinking in particular the, the state of California. Mm-hmm has been quite successful in challenging some of the things that the current administration has done, uh, saying that the administration is using its power in ways that go beyond what Congress has authorized. And the fact that you have power that can be exercised by states, bringing that kind of litigation, even when you don't have actors within the federal government, who take such actions is a way in which, again, we, we have track, uh, checks on abuse of power right. by an administration, even when some of the other traditional separation of powers don't provide those adequate checks. You're absolutely correct. I interviewed uh, Carl Racine, and he's the uh, attorney general of, uh, uh, in Washington, D.C., uh, and he is co-chair of the Democratic uh, attorneys general across the country. And uh-huh. they have filed a lawsuit uh, on the emoluments clause against yes. the president. So this is exactly what we're talking about here, where states uh, attorneys general ha- are, are putting a check on the power of the executive, which is fascinating, right. which this is new ground as, 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 we're, as we're talking. Well, and that's what's so fascinating about all of this. We have so little precedent president to guide us. Of course, that's also why we have lots of lawsuits that have been filed, and at the same time, we don't have a lot of answers yet. It's going to take a fair amount of time. One of my great concerns about the current constitutional crisis we're in is the extent to which there have been efforts to politicize the judicial branch itself. Yes. And that's something that I hope does not happen. Um, I, I hope that there won't be Trump judges and Obama judges and people identified in that manner. We have some history that suggests that that won't be the long-term outcome. Uh, we, we've certainly had examples, however, also of judges who do fall into a particular ideological trap of one sort or another. Mm-hmm. Well, I share your your concern as a lawyer. Uh, and a proud uh, graduate of Washburn Law, uh, I share your concern because I've always felt the, the judiciary was a separate but co-equal branch, but had a very different role, and it was without politics, and it was an interpretation of laws, and I, I just believed it strongly. And this, you know, a little disappointed sometimes on the, the um, Bush v. Gore case, um, and the Supreme Court uh, acting, which appeared to be acting very politically. And that's very, very depressing to me. 
I, I had the same reaction to that case. Yeah. That that is that it really seemed that the judges were lining up and making decisions based on their politics, right. not on their faithful interpretation of the law. Right. And it, it's fairly rare that I end up having that sense and that feeling, mm-hmm. but it does happen. Yes. Well, I think we're we're in sync. Um, you've been very generous with your time. Any last thoughts that you uh, might give us uh, on this crisis that we're facing? Uh, any any leads or uh, advice you might give our, our listeners in, in thinking about this? Let me add just one, mm-hmm. and that is not only do we have checks and balances within the national government, and distribution of power to individual states in addition to the national government. But another way in which the people who framed our Constitution showed incredible foresight is with the First Amendment and the idea that we have a press in particular that is fully independent of the government. Right. And it seems to me that the press is playing a vital role as well. And we should understand that that's part of the whole design, part of the structure of the way in which this nation works. Um, an example of it is our freedom to visit right now and to be able to do this in a manner that can't be constrained by government authority in one way or another. Mm-hmm. Uh, my, my hope, my expectation is that that kind of freedom of us as individuals is another thing that will get us out of the crisis that we appear to be in. At the same time, there are obvious fears or concerns, even in the context of freedom of the press, with people talking about and labeling the press and the the claims of false news, the abuses that occur within the Internet and so on and so forth. Again, things that our framers could not possibly have anticipated. (laughs) but examples of issues that we're facing today. Well, you, you really hit on one that's very dear to me, too, and that's the uh, freedom of speech and, free, and freedom of press. And uh, I was honored and pleased to be president of National Public Radio several years ago, and uh, I worked with some very talented journalists, and they still are uh, doing the same things today. And, yes, uh, we've again, we talked about some of the disappointments. Yeah, you may find some biases on part of uh, journalists, but for the most part, the press has been very dynamic in holding uh, truth to power, and I think that's so important. And my last point, which I'm sure you would agree with me upon about the value of this democracy, is our right to vote. And one yes. of the reasons that I started this podcast is to inform and educate. And I believe strongly that you have helped us today uh, just break down some of the uh, founding fathers' language under our Constitution and talk about this democracy. And I hope that people are listening will say, yes, I I hear you and I understand. And part of this democracy, I have to go out and vote because we're talking about uh, people who are elected to Congress, people who are elected to the Senate and to the House. And we're talking about presidents and their power and the election of presidents, et cetera, that our vote uh, is very, very important. So uh, that's another piece. I couldn't agree with you more. Yeah. Well, you've been incredible into your time. Uh, we've been. Uh, I want to thank you. Uh, this has uh, been very enlightening to me, and I'm very proud to have a, a Washburn uh, presence uh, on the podcast. Uh, we've been talking to Bill Rich, constitutional law professor at the Washburn School of Law in Topeka. So thank you so much, Bill. Appreciate it. Thank you, Del. We've been listening to uh, Left, Right, Forward, 
Business and Political Solutions. Uh, I'm your host, Ambassador Delano Lewis. This is the first in a series uh, on constitutional crisis. I shouldn't say first. We're going to have several uh, series on the constitutional crisis uh, facing the nation, the standoff between the executive and the legislative. And we've been listening to Bill Rich, who spends time studying the Constitution. We talked about the appropriations clause. We talked about checks and balances. We talked about the emoluments clause. We talked about states uh, getting involved in this process of checks uh, on the executive uh, in our country. And we talked about, at the end, uh, the freedoms that we enjoy under this Constitution, the freedom of speech, the freedom of press. And uh, that's, uh, I'm a part of that today, and I hope you'll be a part of that as you're listening to Left, Right, Forward. So till next time, Godspeed. Thanks for listening. You just heard an expert on constitutional law, Professor Bill Rich, explain that now we're in uncharted waters as how our system of laws will be interpreted under our Constitution. Take the Emoluments Clause, for example, under Article 1, Section 9 of the Constitution. It states, and no person holding any office of profit or trust under them shall without the consent of Congress accept any present emolument, office, or title of any kind whatsoever from any king, prince, or foreign state. This clause has not been tested in the courts. However, there are lawsuits by the attorneys general of several states against President Donald Trump under this clause. Finally, the Appropriations Clause under the Constitution, Article 1, Section 8 states, the Congress has the power to lay and collect taxes, imports and excises, to pay debts and provide for the common welfare of the United States. But all duties, imports and excises shall be uniform throughout the United States. This clause is also being tested against President Trump as he is shifting appropriated military funds to the Homeland Security Agency to build a wall at our southern border. These are court tests that will take time as our system is sometimes slow with many rules and appeals. As you know, the Supreme Court is the final arbiter in court cases. I might add, this first week in November, the Supreme Court will hold a hearing on an appeal on the DREAMers. This is DACA, Deferred Action on Early Childhood Arrivals. The appeal will be involved, this appeal will involve a case of whether or not DACA will be terminated and some 700,000 immigrants may be deported. To round out our exploration of the constitutional crisis facing our nation, I'm going to change our format going forward. I would like to introduce the managing director of Left Right Forward Education Foundation, my son, Jeffrey Lewis, who will host this segment and, will, and I will respond to questions. Welcome, Jeff Lewis. Thank you, Mr. Ambassador. It is a pleasure to be here to, to host this part of the show. Uh, very exciting stuff that's going on. My first question to you, 
And I, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to test my theories on the similarities of events that have happened in the past and that are happening today. And what I'm referring to is the Watergate scandal and the cover-up uh, of what I think of the, of the highest levels of the president's office down to his staff, his administration. You know, what happened during that Watergate scenario? And can you explain a little bit about the differences between Watergate and what's going on with the allegations with President Trump today? Well, thank you very much, uh, Jeff. And it's a pleasure to have you hosting Left Right Forward uh, show. Uh, I really believe that that is a very good first question because what we have tried to do in this series of the constitutional crisis facing the nation, we tried to position for our listeners exactly what was going on uh, what's going on today, uh, we could take a quick look at history and find some answers. And I thought that the Watergate scandal, which happened in the early 70s, might be a place to start. And if you recall, uh, we had Don Graham, who was uh, publisher of the Washington Post, and they played an integral role in the whole uh, Watergate uh, coverage uh, during the 70s. And so your question about similarities and differences, uh, I think there is one big uh, uh, similarity, and that is that there are allegations that uh, wrongdoing has emanated from the office of the president. And in the case of Watergate, as you know, there was a break-in at the National Democratic uh, headquarters in, in the Watergate office building, and several persons uh, who were burglarized were arrested. And from that, um, the, the Watergate scandal began because the burglars who were trying to uh, enter the Democratic headquarters had connections to President Nixon's reelection committee. And so the similarity here is there is an allegation that uh, there is some relationship between the break-in and a cover-up that might even lead to the President of the United States. And in today's environment, there have been allegations that uh, our president has uh, obstructed justice possibly, there are allegations there, and there he had maybe has abused his power, uh, or maybe he's a take, he's taken uh, uh, gifts uh, uh, to enrich uh, his, his businesses. These allegations are out there uh, against the President of the United States. Now, what are the differences? <laughs> the difference in this case is, I might add another similarity uh, into the free press, that the press was covering Watergate and the press has been all over these situations happening uh, against Donald Trump. The big difference is the public dimension in that during the Watergate era, there was a Senate investigation committee that was formed, the Senate uh, Committee on Watergate. And it was made of, uh, of Republicans and Democrats, even though it was chaired by Sam Irvin, a uh, senator from, from uh, North Carolina. It, uh, because this, the Democrats had control of the Senate at that time. But he chaired it, but it was a bipartisan committee. And they were investigating what was going on. They were getting at the facts. They were getting at the truth. And so people were riveted uh, to those hearings, listening to the witnesses and the questions coming from both sides to find out if there was a cover-up. And if there was a cover-up, who was responsible? And everyone remembers that Senator Baker, Republican, um, who made the statement, uh, what did President Nixon know and when did he know it? And so 
those things, uh, that's a big difference. Today, these allegations against uh, Donald Trump are being highlighted in the press and in the media uh, and people's conversations, but there have been no public uh, investigation of this, no public hearings. Uh, and as you know, uh, we'll get into that later, that's about to change. So I'll stop there to say, those are the, some of the similarities, but there is certainly a difference in terms of the public's interest or the public having a sense of, of, this, uh, of these issues. That is terrific. You mentioned one part of you in, in your talk here about the free press. And the question I have about the free press and just your thoughts about that word, the free press, and what happened back in the Watergate and what, what Don Graham in the Washington Post was, was uh, uh, covering at the time versus what we have today, fake news. What do you mean by, what's the difference between the fake news and the press? And, and, and who can we believe? Well, that's a fascinating question. I think what's happened today uh, labels are being uh, used, uh, if you recall, and I know you know that I had been president of National Public Radio, and I used to talk about uh, labels, and I used to say that uh, we need to sometimes uh, not talk so much about labels. I know at those days they used to talk about NPR being a very liberal uh, medium uh, and as against a conservative medium. And so we get kind of hung up on the labels, and we don't get to the truth. And I must say that uh, during President Trump's administration, and particularly the president himself, I, that's the first time I've heard of something called fake news. And I think his whole point is, this is news that he feels, uh, or he might not agree with, and therefore he calls it fake. Now, there may be some interpretations of the news that you may agree or disagree, or there may even be some, goodness sakes, fabrication of the news. And I certainly hope that's not the case in America, because I, I trust journalism and, and journalists, I think, uh, believe in their craft and their profession. So that whole term of fake news, I, I think, is something that we need to carefully examine. I think news is important. The role of the free press is important to keep the checks and balances of our system and our government and our society working because someone is looking, someone is asking questions. And let me finally say, all of this should be heading toward the truth. If we've got allegations out here against the President of the United States, we've got allegations against members of his administration or his associates, or we've got questions uh, of constitutional uh, import, we need to find out what the truth is. And what happened during Watergate, I think they were actually looking for the truth to find out exactly what went on in the break-in and did that relate to the Nixon re-election committee and was there a cover-up that went all the way to the White House. So the role of the free press is definitely important to magnify, to understand, to help us analyze and to help us get to the truth. That's fantastic. And, and I, I love how you ended it by trying to, go, to get to the truth. Based on that statement, getting to the truth, Let's switch gears a slight bit and, and talk about the Mueller report. Now, we were trying to get to the truth. Mueller was trying to get to the truth. And he did this investigation for two years. He was investigating. And there were sort of investigations on the Trump campaign, uh, you know, doing Russian interference with the elections of the 2016 campaign. Uh, they were investigating allegations of obstruction of justice. Uh, all this stuff was going on that Mueller was trying to dig in deep. And I know he had limitations and I know he had different things that he had to kind of uh, stay you know, within the law, but how do we get to the truth and what do you, what do you think that that Mueller report had an impact on our country? 
Well, thank you for that question. I um, The Mueller report, um, let me start out by saying uh, it was a special counsel uh, was, appoint, was appointed by the Justice Department, uh, and it was Robert Mueller, former Marine and former FBI agent and, and former director of the FBI, uh, who had an impeccable reputation as an investigator and a patriot for the country. Um, and he was the special counsel to look into the Russian, uh, possible Russian interference in our 2016 election and whether or not there was any conspiracy uh, between the Trump campaign and the Russians on the 2016, and also any related uh, issues that, uh, that might come forth. Uh, and, and the issue that happened... Uh, when his report was issued almost two years to the day uh, from the time that it started in April uh, 2019, uh, what happened was there was some 400 pages. And so just uh, practically, it was just too big uh, for people to really digest. And so well, when you talk about its impact, if people had a chance to read it, I think they could find out that there were serious allegations of obstruction that he put forth. In fact, there's some 10 or 12 allegations of obstruction of justice on the part of the president and his administration. And secondly, I think one of the takeaways was that he did not find any conspiracy between the Trump administration and the Russian interference. But he did say that there were allegations, there, there was evidence of, of possible obstruction of justice. Now, one of the big things about the Mueller report and about the investigation uh, that our listeners need to know and understand is that there is a legal memorandum from the Office of Legal Counsel of the Department of Justice. And this is probably the, the, the legal office of the Department of Justice. And they have a legal opinion. And the long and short of that legal opinion from the Office of Legal Counsel is the fact is a, is a position, uh, uh, an opinion, that a sitting president should, should not be prosecuted. And Robert Mueller was very much guided by the legal counsel opinion. It is not law, it is an opinion. And uh, I had some discussions with Bill Rich on that episode about this particular uh, legal counsel opinion. And Bill Rich, Professor Rich had an interesting take on it. His take was that uh, he felt that indicting a sitting president, prosecuting a sitting president would just upend our system of government. And he didn't feel that a prosecution of the president was appropriate remedy. He felt the appropriate remedy was impeachment. And I know we're gonna talk about that later. So he didn't feel that, uh, that the use of the prosecutorial uh, authority uh, was the right approach. So the legal counsel opinion, even though I think that guided Mueller saying a sitting president cannot be indicted, uh, there's one professor who felt uh, even without a, that opinion, he, he didn't think, think that was the appropriate remedy. So back to your um, comment about its impact. I think its impact was such that it became a political tool. I think uh, the president uh, really was against this investigation. Uh, he's tried to impugn uh, the, the integrity of the special counsel. Uh, there was a lot of back and forth on, on, on this report. Uh, but I think that one of the things that happened was when Attorney General Bill Barr was uh, named Attorney General, he framed this report before it was released. 
and he framed it in a such a way that uh, he felt that there was no no conspiracy, there was no uh, relationship between the Russians and the and the uh, uh, Trump campaign, and he also did not uh, deal with any of those allegations of possible obstruction. So he framed it uh, in a way that basically, from Mr. Trump's point of view, uh, he said in many ways had exonerated him. But in any event, I think what my view is, when you ask me my, my view of the impact, my view was that, uh, number one, the special counsel felt that the legal counsel opinion uh, forbid him from indicting uh, a sitting president. Now, whether he would do it if there was not such an opinion, we don't know. But I, I think that guided him not to prosecute the president. But I think my second point is he did lay out several instances of possible obstruction of justice. And my view was, I think he laid that out for Congress to take appropriate steps, that maybe it wasn't a prosecutor's decision here uh, to deal with the issues and these allegations. Maybe it was a congressional move that was uh, the next step. And I think that might be what Mueller was trying to tell us. Yeah. That is fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. Thank you so much for that explanation, because I'm sure a lot of our listeners really needed to know that detail and wanted to find out more about how our constitutional constitutional works. Uh, you mentioned in, in your last uh, uh, talk about about Congress and you talk about Congress. And this is something that's been something that, that, that I've been wanting to learn more about as well. And I want to take you way back. I want to take you way back to our founding fathers. And you talked about Congress, you talked about impeachment. Um, and so I wanna take you back into what our founding fathers put together when they did this unbelievable document called the Constitution and what they thought about some 200 plus years ago on, on how we govern this country. And, and so it's amazing how some of these things are now coming out uh, and, and you're, you're using the, the uh, um, Constitution to, to, to figure out where we are in, in the law. And so I think if you can kind of put all the stuff we just talked about, the Mueller report, uh, all the stuff that we just, we just mentioned, and ask you, can you explain to me how the, father, the founding fathers uh, dealing with the impeachment process civil uh, uh, process of civil officers, including the president of the United States, and how does that process work? Well, I definitely will. I, I, I think it's amazing, and I talked a little bit about this with Professor Rich, that you were right, the document uh, we call the Constitution, uh, which was uh, established over 200 years ago, uh, is such a living document today. And uh, I think that so many parts of the Constitution are prophetic. Uh, they really uh, prophesized or realized what possibly could happen um, uh, going forward. And I just think it's amazing uh, what they put together. They envisioned so many things. I want They, they envisioned a strong national government. Uh, they envisioned uh, uh, a confederation of states that would work together. But they envisioned a very strong, a powerful national government. And they set out various articles and uh, clauses to to develop a system of how our government should work, and they they sort of um, understood that impeachment might come about, or we may have instances where we have allegations against officers of our government, or even the president of the United States. 
And so they laid out the whole process, I think, fairly clearly. Uh, Article 1, Section 2, Clause 5. It says, the House of Representatives shall choose their speaker and other officers and shall have the sole power of impeachment. So they had laid out right there that impeachment was a process that would be at the behest of Congress, the House of Representatives, very clearly. And then Article 2, Section 4, it says the president, vice president, and all civil officers of the United States shall be removed from office on impeachment for conviction of treason, bribery, or high crimes or misdemeanors. So again, they laid out specifically what they intended. They intended that the president, the vice president, and civil officers of the country, that could be judges, that could be uh, representatives, that could be office holders, they could be impeached uh, if you could show conviction of treason, uh, bribery, or high crimes and misdemeanors. Then they went on even further. Article 1, Section 3, Clause 6, and Clause 7. They said that the Senate has the power to try the impeachments. So under, under, uh, under one clause, uh, the House of Representatives will bring the articles of impeachment based on convictions of uh, articles of impeachment that could involve bribery, treason, or high crimes and misdemeanors. But the Senate would try those impeachments and that the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court would, res would preside. So again, they had a sense that the Vice President is also pro tem of the Senate. And if he may be involved or could be involved in any allegations, they take him out of the picture and have the uh, Chief Justice of the Supreme Court preside over the trial in the Senate. Mm. And they lay out very clearly in those clauses that two thirds would be needed to convict the president or any civil officer. And to remove them, it would require a two-thirds vote. Then another very important piece, they also say that judicial removal from office uh, is what the power of impeachment is, but it still says, um, and they said that you cannot hold any federal office if you were convicted and removed, you couldn't hold federal office again. But it said um, that you could be tried for other crimes as well. So that lays it all out very, very clearly. It lays it out that Congress has the power to impeach. It starts with articles of impeachment in the House of Representatives. It lays out a trial in the Senate with the Supreme, uh, the uh, uh, Chief Justice Supreme Court presiding over the trial. And then they have a vote of two thirds as to whether to convict that officer and uh, and, and if that two-thirds vote says yes, that officer would be removed. And that officer could not hold any other federal office. However, that officer could be tried in other courts for other crimes. So I think it's a remarkable document. That is incredible. And, and I, a follow-up question to that would be, uh, you are former U.S. ambassador to the Republic of South Africa under President Bill Clinton. And I, if I'm not mistaken, Bill Clinton was 
impeached. Now we've got a process going through where Congress is getting ready to impeach uh, President Trump, or at least put the allegations out there to impeach uh, President Trump. Can you give me your own personal views about the two differences of what's happened with Clinton versus what's happening with Trump? And what are just some of the things that have transpired between the two? Yeah, well, that's a very good question. I'll go even once, I'll even go one further. Let's talk about what happened with President Nixon first, uh, in that uh, they did put forth articles of impeachment. They were working on articles of impeachment uh, against President Nixon, but, uh, but he was not impeached, he resigned. And he resigned from office before the impeachment uh, process uh, went forward. So there was, I don't, I don't think he was impeached. And uh, I know there was not a trial in the Senate. Now, in President Bill Clinton that you mentioned, he was impeached. And that involved uh, his lying uh, about having sexual relations with an intern in his office. And that was brought as an article of impeachment. And uh, he was impeached. The trial was in the Senate and he was not convicted. Uh, so now we would have here, there are going to be hearings uh, early November uh, by the Senate Intelligence Committee uh, on uh, possible uh, facts about the president and the administration and Ukraine. And in that picture, uh, they're going to lay out uh, officers in the State Department who have said, uh, based on a whistleblower's complaint, uh, that is center stage. And then other witnesses uh, will come forth and we will see whether they will corroborate the whistleblower's complaint that uh, President Trump was holding uh, aid to Ukraine for a favor to investigate a political rival in the upcoming elections. And if that uh, holds up in terms of an article of impeachment, that will be an abuse of power, a possible article of impeachment in the House of Representatives. But the similarities here is that it appears now that the House Intelligence Committee will hold hearings and have witnesses to talk about this Ukraine issue. Uh, the witnesses are talking about uh, his personal attorney, um, uh, Rudy Giuliani, uh, who uh, uh, was uh, some alleged uh, dealing in foreign policy uh, uh, and not uh, a member of our State Department, mm -hmm. but was uh, a part of working to get the president of Ukraine to investigate a possible uh, political rival of the president. And uh, also, uh, it was a back channel uh, with the possible removal of an ambassador. Uh, and so uh, that's going to be talked about uh, with uh, hearings uh, uh, as to whether or not there were abuse of power on the part of Trump uh, and his administration, including his personal attorney, uh, Rudy Giuliani. So we will hear, I think, very soon uh, uh, the similarity here by having uh, public hearings on these issues and hopefully getting to the truth as to whether or not there was any abuse of power on the part of President Trump and his administration as it relates to Ukraine. Mm -hmm. So that's gonna be happening very soon. And this is the constitutional crisis that we've been talking about mm -hmm. here on Left Right Forward for several weeks now. Uh, and I think it's important for our listeners to judge for themselves as to whether or not um, there has been violations of our constitution and uh, have there been abuses of power on the part of the Trump administration. Mm -hmm. 
Now, that's terrific. Uh, before we wrap up, and, and I want to give you a, a final wrap-up statement to talk about all of the, the things that you talked about in the Constitutional Crisis series uh, and, and talking about the people that you have interviewed and, and some of their views. But before I get to that point, I do want to just talk about the point, and maybe if you can give me some little bit more clarification on what it means to have a presidential pardon. Nixon was pardoned, but he was not convicted because uh, he didn't go through impeachment. And, you know, what could that happen in this Trump situation? You know, if, if something were to happen, can he be pardoned for his crimes? And that's just something that's just very interesting. Well, uh, that's a very hard one. And I, uh, very hard one to, to, to answer because uh, in the Nixon situation, um, after he resigned, uh, the vice president, Gerald Ford, became president. So we don't know what will happen in this situation with President Trump. We don't know whether there's going to be a resignation. We don't know whether uh, the vice president's going to be involved in any of these allegations. So we don't we don't have the same scenario. Uh, so the scenario you gave was that when Nixon resigned, Gerald Ford became president and he pardoned President Nixon. And I think that he also received a lot of political backlash for that. And I think that even though the, the president President Nixon had not been convicted. I think the pardon was done to protect Nixon from being uh, charged with any other crimes that I mentioned that the Constitution provides. Yeah. So he gave him a blanket pardon, mm -hmm. uh, so to speak. And I think that was within his purview as mm -hmm. president of the United States. Uh, but I think he received some political backlash by doing it. So to answer your question about whether or not that would happen today, I can't. Uh, I can't really... <laughs> speculate at all because the scenarios have not unfolded. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well that that is terrific. I wanted to give you just a few seconds and a few, you know, to to wrap up anything that you want to say that relates to your your series, uh, the people you have interviewed. Uh, you've interviewed Professor Miro Morrissey, uh, Professor Bill Rich, and of course Don Graham, the uh, publisher of the Washington Post. And Every single one of those uh, folks that you've had special relationships with, and uh, you've had different times with them, and so maybe you want to sort of do just some real quick explaining on who they are and why you decided to interview them. Well, well, thank you. I'd like to conclude by saying thanks to you, uh, Jeff, uh, because you've been a strong advocate and supporter for Left Right Forward Show. Uh, you're our managing director of our Education Foundation, and you're a strong believer that uh, what we're doing here is to educate and inform and inspire our listeners. Um, this cri constitutional crisis series, I think was very important to me uh, personally. Uh, I, I wanted um, our listeners to hear about issues impacting our country that uh, involve the Constitution of the United States. I know that in many places um, around uh, our country, uh, civics and civics lessons and understanding government uh, have been put on a back burner or, or, or even non-existent. In some places, they don't even teach civics or they don't even teach government. So I think it's so important for us as citizens and, and, and for voters and for this democracy to understand our Constitution and understand some of the issues that are confronting us today. So that's why I started with this constitutional series. Uh, I started with Professor Muro Marcy, uh, a retired professor of constitutional law, at the Beasley School of Law at Temple University. Uh, we knew each other back uh, our days on Capitol Hill uh, with Delegate Walter Fauntroy, who was a non-voting delegate to the House of Representatives. So we knew each other way back, but she became a constitutional law expert. And I appreciated her views 
on the appropriations clause and on the emoluments clause. We had long discussions about that. And then I graduated from Washburn School of Law in Topeka, Kansas, and uh, I contacted uh, the constitutional law professor who had a distinguished background uh, in constitutional law, Professor Bill Rich, who's been at the school almost 40 years. And he had some ideas uh, that he wanted to share with us about uh, the constitutional issues that we were facing. So, and obviously uh, living in Washington and working in government and business, I had a good uh, relationship with the Washington Post and with the publisher, uh, uh, the chairman of the Post at one time, uh, Catherine Graham, and her son, Don Graham, uh, and the Post uh, and their relationship uh, to many, many issues uh, uh, com confronting our nation. So I was appreciative of Don Graham, who gave a very descriptive view of the Watergate issue and its similarities and possible differences with what's happening today. So I hope that you took something away from this, that you had a sense that the issues that are real today about uh, our Constitution about the appropriations clause, and that starts with with uh, with the Congress, and that's a co-equal branch of government. The power of the executive and what the executive can and cannot do, uh, we we're going to experience that with uh, DACA, deferred action on early childhood arrivals, and that's going to be uh, decided uh, in the Supreme Court this week as to whether those dreamers who came to this country uh, as children uh, with their parents, and so they grew up in this country, and even though they're here. Uh, not legally, uh, but this is the only country they know, and whether or not there's maybe some pathway to citizenship and they would not be deported because America has been their home. So we're going to find out whether that's the Supreme Court's going to give us an answer on that particular issue. So I hope that you have listened uh, to uh, Left, Right, Forward, and they had a sense of some of the issues that uh, that are prominent in the news uh, that it relates to this administration in terms of Russia's intervention in the 26th election, whether or not there are any uh, the allegations of obstruction of justice on the part of this administration, and now whether uh, uh, there's abuse of power as it relates to Ukraine and whether uh, this administration was using the lever of military aid uh, in return for information on a political rival. So all of these things are real and are, come, are gonna come to some fruition. So as listeners here, I hope that you will uh, listen and uh, vote when it comes time to vote and analyze and make decisions on your own. Well, that was incredible. <clears throat> I want to uh, let our listeners know, I would like to give a big thank you to uh, the host of the Left Right Forward show, uh, my father, Ambassador Delano Lewis, who did a fantastic job in sort of laying out the constitutional crisis issues and his thoughts on, on what's transpiring today. Uh, I am Jeff Lewis, and I'm, I'm, it's my pleasure to be the host of this uh, very, very interesting segment. Uh, and I'm the managing director of the Left Right Forward Education Foundation. And I really hope that all the stuff that you had heard today, uh, that uh, it has, has informed you, inspired you, and educated you as you go on through your daily lives. Until next time, let's keep the peace and keep listening. Thank you very much.